forgot to mention that. Kids, you are dismissed to head downstairs to be with Sister Roberta and Corey. We'll take care of you. Have a good time while the rest of the adults are up here. I guess I did a little too much talking this morning and not preparing here. I'm running behind. All right. All right, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to grab them and open them up and follow along. We're going to be uh, mostly in the Gospel of Mark, but also be in Acts and Hebrews. Is that better? All right, sorry about that. I forgot to turn on my mic. So we have a few other verses that we're going to turn to, Hebrews and Acts and Mark. So if you kind of want to follow, uh, find them now, that'd be great. Um, Lord willing, the, the words should be behind me as well, as long as the technology works. But we're just going to be covering verses 12 and 13. This is our fourth sermon in Mark, and we've only made it 13 verses. But that's just how it is going um, as the Lord, um, as I go to the Lord each each week and, and dive into his word, it's... Uh, it's just been a verse or two at a time, and I pray um, that as you have taken the time to come here this morning and, and have prepared your heart, that the Lord would use this time and the truth that's being proclaimed, no matter how lousy I may deliver it, it is God's truth and God's word that I so desire for, for you to know and to, for it to be proclaimed, that the Spirit would use it in your life. And... Um, as um, as you look to him, as you pursue Christ and his word and the spirit uses the his sword, which is the word of God in your life. I pray that's the case. So Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, the title of my sermon this morning is called The Last Adam. And as we read the verses, you're not going to see that term last Adam in this passage of scripture. But ultimately, that's, that's where my study has led, had led me to conclude this idea of the last Adam that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. He compares what Christ has done versus what happened with the fall of Adam, the first Adam. And how Christ is the last Adam. And in him, the reverse of the curse is, is complete in Christ and, and what he's done. And what a marvelous truth that we have this morning. To know that Jesus is the last Adam. And through him, and a relationship through him, entering into a saving uh, fellowship and relationship with him by trusting and believing in what Christ has done, um, allows us to be adopted into to his lineage the family of God, instead of the lineage that we're born with and through the first Adam. And Mark, chapters, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, speak to this idea of how Jesus became and, and fully fulfilled God's design for him in his earthly ministry as becoming the last Adam. And the first thing that I, there's three big takeaways that I hope to take, have or give to you this morning that you can take away and, and maybe ponder later on throughout the week. And the, the first one is in this passage of scripture, we see Jesus as being tempted and tried just like us. Mark chapter one, verses 12 and 13 says this, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness 
In verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. So why is this important? Why does Mark record this immediately after what we just talked about last week, his, his baptism, right? Jesus comes to John and says, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness that the other gospel uh, that we looked at uh, recorded. The gospel of Luke uh, spoke of that. And we, we talked about that least week, last week, how Jesus identified with mankind and his sin by, by coming to John and asking to be baptized. He was identifying with us symbolically in the baptism that John was doing uh, that we had covered in previous weeks and the previous passages. He symbolically identified with mankind's sin and, and his identity as the Messiah and, and coming to, to be God's representative on earth. He, he identified with the very uh, important fact that the problem was, was sin. And he was identifying with mankind's problem of sin by being baptized. But here in this passage of Scripture, we see Jesus not symbolically identifying with our problem of sin, but literally identifying with the problem of sin as a man, right? That theological term called the hypostatic union is another term like we discussed the Trinity last week. The Trinity is not found in the Bible, but it's just a term that we use to, dis- to describe in short order what we have derived from Scripture, what God's special revelation has revealed to us of who God is. The triune nature of our God has been revealed to us, and we use a term like the Trinity to, to briefly surmise that. And here we see or this word hypostatic union is another theological term that we use to try to describe the nature in which Jesus walked on this earth that he did was, as we discussed in a couple weeks ago, he was truly divine. He was the unique one sent from heaven. He is divine and had the full, uh, the full knowledge of the, the fully uh, eternal um, co-equality with God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus was very unique in the fact that he was divine, but we also need to not underscore, uh, we also need to stress that he was 100% human as well. That Jesus, before the virgin birth and before the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and, and, and made Jesus inside of her, or put Jesus inside of her womb, that Jesus had always coexisted uh, co- with the Father, but in spirit. It is only when Jesus came and took upon a body that Jesus now has the body of a man. And in his earthly ministry, he was not only divine, 100% God in the flesh, but he was 100% man as well. And that's very important for us to understand because ultimately he is the sacrifice in which the Father accepted for the punishment of sin. He atoned for us, and he is sufficient because of his unique nature of being fully God, eternally being able to pay that penalty one time, but yet a fully man and taking that punishment uh, literally and physically. And Jesus is, or Mark is pointing to us or recording this historical point that Jesus literally identified with being a man. Not just figuratively, but literally. Mark and the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, talk about, record this, this thing that immediately after Jesus was baptized by John, he went, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. 
He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. And we, if we look at the other Gospels, we know that Mark uh, greatly truncates this uh, and what happened during those 40 days and 40, uh, 40 days that Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, right? He, he, uh, he, Mark records that the angel, he was with the wild animals, yes, he was there out in the, in the, in the wilderness, and then he, he ends by saying, and the angels were serving him. But we know in the other gospel accounts, we know that the angels did not come to serve him until after his 40 days was up and after he, he had been tempted in all points by Satan. And the other gospel writers talk about in, in further detail what, how Jesus was tempted by Satan and the different things that the Jesus tempted him with. But we see um, uh, th- that as uh, this uh, uh, again, the gospel writers trying to de- demonstrate to us uh, through the Holy Spirit ultimately that Jesus truly is man, a man, and he truly was tempted just like us, but yet he was without sin because he was the unique one. He wasn't just a man, he was also God. The second takeaway I'd like to try to point out to us this, or for us this morning is that Jesus in his wilderness journey in his wilderness temptation uh, this, the gospel writers are, 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 um, are careful to, to point out that Jesus was both spirit led and spirit filled through his trial and through this time Mark 12 says that immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness your translation might say the spirit led him into the wilderness. Uh, Taking a closer look at another gospel writer, Luke records this. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. So he was filled with the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And just a couple things to immediately take away from this passage of Scripture. The only way that this makes sense is if we understand the triune nature of our God. We see the Holy Spirit acting independently of Jesus, yet being fully God. And God the Son being uh, acting independently of the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, but yet, right, 100% God. And the Father, as we saw in uh, Jesus' baptism, speaking from heaven and, and purposing these things to, to, to happen. And so we see the, the third person of the triune God uh, leading Jesus and filling Jesus. And so maybe the question might be, well, well, if Jesus is God, why did he need to be filled by the Holy Spirit? And I think this, this speaks to his truly identifying, literally identifying as a man. Jesus is revealed to us in the New Testament scriptures as, yes, divine, but yes, also a man. And, and error can come when, we, when someone takes a verse, a passage of Scripture to, to tell you who Jesus is and, and doesn't take into context whether that writer's talking about his divinity as God in the flesh or they're writing to, and talking about Jesus in, in his human nature and dealing with the same things that you and I deal with as a person, being tired, enduring trials and temptations, it greatly, uh, we, we as uh, Bereans or, or people of the word need to, need to understand that, that the, the scriptures talk about Jesus both of his 100% being the, the son of God and divine and as a person. 
and the struggling. And so if this is Jesus is the, the ultimate answer for, for us, and he's truly the last Adam. He's, he's the man that has come uh, to, to save his people, um, to go to the cross, to take the sacrifice. And in his human nature, we see uh, that he is anointed by the Spirit, that the Spirit of the, comes down from heaven like a, like a dove in his baptism, and then he's full of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately what the Scriptures are saying when, when it proclaims being filled with the Holy Spirit or, or full of the, uh, being full of the Holy Spirit is um, God actively demonstrating his power in his creation and in us. And so Jesus was both full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And that's another thing we can take away. God allowed Jesus to go into these temptations. Jesus was not spared the temptations that you and I and the trials that you and I endure in this life. God allowed that. And, and so we can, as He allowed His Son to do that, we, we can take some solace in, in knowing that God has allowed the trials in our lives to be there as well. And we can also take solace in understanding or or comfort in the fact of knowing that He's also given us, His children, the opportunity to be indwelt by the Spirit as we proclaim and receive and trust Him and be born from above, but we can be filled by the Spirit as well to endure the trials of this life. Just as the perfect human Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, so you and I need to be filled by the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit in our lives. Those are two things that we can, we can take away from the, the fact that Jesus, when He went into this temptation, he was, he was, uh, um, God's power was upon Him. He was, uh, the Holy Spirit was enabling Him to endure this temptation 40 days. The other Gospel writers say He fasted for that time. I don't know about you, but if I miss lunch, I get... I get Hangry, right? Forty days. He went in and fasted and was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The other gospel writers go into greater detail as far as how Satan tempted him. But we see that it was through the power of God. Him being full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit in which he was able to endure those from his humans from the human understanding of Jesus from his human nature. That just as Jesus in his humanness required the filling of the Holy Spirit, so you and I do as well. Verse 2, For forty days to be tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. And then the Gospel writers go on to describe more what was going on. So the application for us that we can immediately take away is the, the understanding for you and I as Christians to, to live this life and to, to endure the, the um, trials and the, the hardships of this world uh, that, that come into our lives. In order to do that in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord, you and I need to be filled by the indwelling Spirit as well. And I know that's kind of wordy there, the application force being filled by the indwelling spirit, but it's an important uh, aspect that we need to understand. We, we become indwelt by the spirit when we become saved, right? We talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would come and bring the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have stenciled on our wall here, Ephesians 4, 5, and it says there's only one baptism of the spirit. When the 
Spirit uh, baptizes us, regenerates us, makes us born again, right? We, the Spirit comes and indwells us. And there's only one of those times in our lives that the Holy Spirit comes. He never leaves us, right? Jesus has promises that he would dwell within us. We are now the temple of God. There's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it's, as we learn to walk in Jesus, it's largely up to us how we, how we choose to walk in this world with the opportunity to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit's power, or to grieve the Spirit, or to ignore the Spirit. That's the, the walk of sanctification. We get allured by what this world has to offer even as believers and we begin to pursue those things and, and discard God and, and his, what He's doing in, this, in the, His creation. And we grieve the Spirit by doing so. And the Scriptures call us back time and time again to no, not do that, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, be not drunk with wine, because that's in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. If you're going to be controlled by something, be controlled by the Spirit of God who dwells within you. So important for us to grasp and to try to walk out through the power of the Spirit. Again, being filled with the Spirit is, is the third person of our God, the God the Spirit, actively demonstrating the power of God. And He actively demonstrated the power of God in Jesus' wilderness 40-day temptation and, Lord willing, the Spirit's actively demonstrating the power of God in our lives as well as we learn to walk in the Spirit and be filled by Him. We see a few instances in Acts. Uh, I just pulled out a few. There's many more about this, uh, this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see the Spirit first coming upon the church in Acts chapter 2 in a great display of God's power. Acts records, then they were, that's the, the disciples, were, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we see this active, dim- this is this awesome demonstration of God's power in, in this first uh, uh, appearing and filling of the church through the, uh, the God the Spirit coming upon the church and doing that. It's, it was just a, an amazing scene. And, and these apostles, as they were preaching the gospel and proclaiming it, uh, the Scriptures record they were speaking in different tongues. And they go on to, to, to demonstrate to us that this wasn't just like, like a tongue of gibberish, but it was as they were proclaiming the gospel, people from different languages and different backgrounds were understanding the gospel message in their own language. The mighty hand of God was upon the apostles. Peter, as he was proclaiming the gospel, they were hearing their own language and as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So obviously this awesome and uh, active demonstration of God's power upon the church and acts. And even uh, the Spirit filling the, after Peter's indwelt by him, the, the, uh, after the Holy Spirit's indwelt by Peter, um, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon Peter and filling him uh, to be able to proclaim the gospel and the power of God in Acts chapter 4. The, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, and he began to proclaim the gospel. But we see that Jesus, or that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit before he began to do that. 
That it was the Spirit of God using him and his actively demonstrating God's power through Peter's proclamation of the gospel. And you and I should seek to be filled with the Spirit in our lives for the proclaiming of the gospel and just be filled for our daily life. How important it is to to pursue God this way. To not just wake up, grab a cup of coffee, and head out the door because you're late. That's me. (laughs) But to spend time with the Lord and and put on the armor of God and to, to be filled with the Spirit so that God can empower you, that His awesome demonstration of His power can be a reality in your life. On, not just on those big occasions, but in our daily lives. In Acts chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, this records um, this, uh, this guy named Barnabas who was sent by the church to come to these particular, this particular church. And this is what the Scriptures record Barnabas as being. And when he arrived, that's Barnabas, and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. So Barnabas is encouraging them to to remain true and devoted to God as I'm trying to do this morning, right? And then the Scriptures describe Barnabas Barnabas as being this. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas rolls into town, and he's not proclaiming the gospel, and he's standing up in front of the city, right? The, the church looks upon this man, and he sees a man who's just walking in the power of the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit of God. And God was using him as he learned to walk with him. And all uh, this is my prayer for, for, for me and for you. So often in our modern Western culture, we're, we're so quick to, to uh, focus on like the gifts of the Spirit and tongues and whether or not they're active for today or not. And, and, and I see abuses all the time of these gifts that are recorded in Scripture in our modern church. But show me a person, show me a woman or a man who, who's full of the Holy Spirit, who just actively works out the, what um, Paul describes in, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit in their life. That they, that they Through the power of their Spirit, they, they're loving towards people and they have peace with, towards people. They, they build peace and not war. They're, they're patient towards others. They're, they're kind and they're good. They demonstrate goodness and faithfulness. All this fruit that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5 as the fruit coming from what? Being filled by the Spirit. Show me a person like that before you show me some other work, some other gift. That's what I desire, to be full of the Holy Spirit, not just on Sunday mornings, but through my entire week, that God would use me that I would be a powerful demonstration of God's or a demonstration of God's power in the people around me as the Spirit works through me, as I seek to walk in the Spirit and be filled by Him. What, a, what other demonstration of God's power is there than to take a person like me who, right, wretched and 
totally selfish before I knew Jesus and was all about me. And then saves me from my wretchedness and my sin and desires and patiently works in me day after day. And trying to, the Spirit patiently trying to demonstrate this fruit in my life, that is a huge demonstration of God's power. To be able to work in us on a daily life, on a daily, in a daily basis, and demonstrate His power through demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. How important it is for us to focus on the Lord and be filled with the Spirit and not just have it be cerebral and academic, but meet with God and ask to be filled and to pursue Christ and the power of the Spirit who indwells us. Paul summarizes the fruit of the Spirit after he gets done talking about the fruit of the Spirit as we learn to walk in the Spirit. He says this, if we live by the Spirit, right, the Spirit has given us life. Newness of life. If we live by Him, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. God can marvelously demonstrate His power in our lives as we yield to the Spirit and walk in His power. Just as Jesus provided the, or it's recorded that Jesus was provided the, the example in the wilderness trial that He went through, being filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, so you and I should be as well. That's the, the greatest application that I took away from this passage as I was studying out. This week. The third takeaway that I'd like to close with is that we see that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in those 40 days. He was tempted just like you and I, but he was unique in the fact that he was, right, he, he, he did not fail the test. He was without sin. And although Mark doesn't specifically or explicitly say that he uh, was without sin, we, right? Other scriptures declare that. They, and and the God, uh, Mark and Luke show how Jesus was tempted by Satan and how each time Jesus rebuked Satan and he used the word of God as the means in which he rebuked Satan. He says every single time that he was tempted that's been recorded, he said, it is written, right? The sword of the spirit, the, the power of the word of God that we have in our lives, Jesus rebuked Satan by quoting Scripture or leaning on Scripture. But we see through this wilderness journey of Jesus that he was tempted yet without sin. And that's such an important context. There's teachers out there, there's religions out there that teach that Jesus did have sin. And we stand firmly in what Scripture declares that Jesus was God who knew no sin. And He had to be God who knew no sin. He had to be a perfect sacrifice to be able to pay that eternal consequence or sacrifice once and for all. He had to be the spotless Lamb of God that the, that the Scriptures in the Old Testament prophesied He should be. And so we rejoice in the knowledge that although Jesus was a man, He was also God, 100% God, and although he was tempted like us, he remained without sin. And Hebrews 4.15 speaks of this. For we do not have a high priest. He's speaking of Jesus as our great high priest who's our mediator, right? A priest in the Old Testament is one that stood between a sinful people and a holy God and mediated. 
And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who took upon flesh, who is now still bodily, right, as a human, is now uh, our great high priest forever making intercession for us. And the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as being our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek who had no beginning or ending. He, he is now the one mediating for us on an eternal basis. And the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I love that passage because it shows us that Jesus understands what it means to be a human, a broken human in a broken world. He's not some far-off deity who just stands back and shakes his head and says, can't they just get it right? He, He understands what it means to be tempted and to walk in this world and the darkness that's all around. And he sympathizes with us. And I hope that brings you comfort this morning that your great high priest, your mediator, the, the, your Lord who has died for you understands your trials and your struggles. And if you're like me, the temptation is to, to measure myself and always find myself lacking. And the temptation is to run from God and hide from Him and ignore Him because I don't feel like I'm worthy because I'm not. But it makes the gospel and what Jesus has done all the more richer for us as we see uh, what Scripture has declared, that He understands our brokenness. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, and that's why He came. Because He came to save you because you could not save yourself. And we demonstrate that even as believers on a daily basis. So instead of running from God and hiding from God as we find ourselves inadequate, we run to Him. We seek shelter in Christ and His righteousness. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day saying, I can't do it on my own. It is only through the blood of Jesus that I can be made whole. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 goes on and says, Therefore we must boldly come to the throne because of what Christ has done. Don't let your inabilities and your your own self-inadequacies keep you from the throne of God. Christ has made the way. Rest in Him. Rest in His righteousness. And not your own. He goes on in verse 15, But one who has been tempted in every way, our great high priest, knows what it's like and sympathizes because he's been there. And his wilderness temptation that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke demonstrate the fact that he truly, literally identifies with what it means to be a human and what it means to be tempted. But the biggest difference is there at the end. Yet without sin. Yes, he understands, but he is the one who came the Son of God, who was tempted, who took upon the form of a man, was tempted just like yes, yet remained without sin. And how important that is for us and our understanding of what God has done through the gospel because we see, uh, um, as I mentioned, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15.45 of Jesus being the last Adam. And in Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul writes again and gives a, a deeper explanation of this. He, he compares and contrasts Adam, the first created, how he failed in the garden, right? He, 
he was tempted by the devil and he, he sinned. He disobeyed God. And sin followed him. And sin and the consequences of sin is all around us in this world today. And that's what he says. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, he compares and contrasts the first Adam with Jesus as being the last Adam. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, showing the separation that, was a, that had been caused by Adam disobeying God. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all have sinned. We have a world around us, and humanity has been born separated from their God and their Creator because of sin and the sin nature that we all inherit and, and prove on a daily basis that we have. Disobeying God, rebellious against God. And that's the reality of the, the brokenness of this world is all consequences of the fall. That this world, as beautiful as it is, is under the curse and under, under the ramifications of sin entering into it through the first Adam, through what is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. But the Scriptures go on to declare the, the good news that God has not left us in His sin, that He's, he's made a way of reconciliation. To be reconciled back to our Creator through what? Through Christ. Who, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, is the last Adam. And a good description of what Christ has done is again found in Romans 5, a few verses later. And it speaks of this adoption that we can all partake in. That all who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ can be adopted from the consequences of sin and the first Adam and be adopted into the family of God. Romans 5.15 But the gift is not like the trespass. This gift of salvation, right? It's a gift. It's, it's not earned. It is something God has done through Christ. And he goes on, For if by the one man's trespass the many died, right? all who were born after Adam are separated from their God had the consequences of physical death, but the the spiritual separation that has occurred, all of us are born into this world in that regard. For if by one man's trespasses the many died, how much more have have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many? How much more is this beautiful gift of God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus Overflowed to, the, overflowed to the many. We see this where we're born, separated from God, and then this rescue story, God's rescue story of sending Jesus into the world, tempted like us, taking upon the form of a man, yet being without sin, only to go to the cross and pay for sin. The sin of all who will believe. Jesus took the penalty upon Himself so that you and I can be forgiven and redeemed from what we truly deserve through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's an overflow, a demonstration of God's grace, His unmerited favor to us, because we can't earn it. And I love the fact that the Scriptures declare and portray, as Paul does, that we're pulled out of the first Adam and we're adopted into the family of God. John writes in John chapter 1, about Jesus coming into the world and many rejected Him and denied 
who he was. But he goes on in verse 12 to say, but to all who did receive him, who did receive Jesus, who heard the, hear the gospel message, right, in our context, he gave them, if we receive Jesus and what he's done for us, the scriptures declare in John chapter 1, verse 12, that he gave them the right to become the children of God. If you receive Jesus and his sacrificial work uh, and apply it and believe and trust to your account, the scriptures declare that you are adopted into the family of God. We can become children of God. And how do we receive this gospel message? He goes on to say, to those who believe in his name, to those who believe in Jesus and his accomplished work. Have you trusted in Christ and his salvific work? Have you placed your faith in him alone? Do you believe that it is through his vicarious sacrifice that that is the only means in which you can be adopted into the family of God and enjoy the blessing of eternal life that is to come? It is through Christ and Christ alone. You must believe. Will you come to him? Will you trust in his work alone and abandon hope and all else? John says, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, this salvation doesn't come from your genealogy or of the will of the flesh. It doesn't come from you deciding that you're going to you're going to do good enough good for to God allow God to let you in, whoever God is, or of the will of man. It's not through a religious system. This rebirth, this spiritual regeneration doesn't come from us or from religion. But at verse 13, it says, but of God. Being born again or born from above comes through being baptized of the Holy Spirit and regenerated and made new in Christ. This adoption into the family of God only comes through Christ and His salvific work and placing this trust in Him. I pray pray that that is you this morning. That you've encountered Jesus in this way. And then if you haven't, that today would be the day when you would turn from anything else that you're trusting in, your self-righteousness, your your good works, your religion, and you place your faith and trust in Christ alone. The scriptures declare that it is the only means in which we can be adopted into his family and enjoy the eternal blessing of eternal life that is given through what Jesus has done. Call out to him. I pray that's the case for you this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your goodness, to be reminded of your, uh, your, your great love that you've demonstrated to us, Lord, and, and the great salvific work of Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, that our father Adam failed, and where he failed, Jesus completely and perfectly obtained and lived out the, the law and the requirements that you've laid out He did that only to go to the cross and pay for our penalty, Lord, to pay for our sin, and we're so grateful.